We're going to be in chapter 2 today of 1 Thessalonians. We are just rocketing through this book. In, um, in Charles Spurgeon's famous work, Lectures to My Students, he has, a, he has a chapter titled, The Blind Eye and the Deaf Ear. And this, this great preacher of old, he really had a way with words. Um, and so he explains to his ministerial students that, quote, a minister ought to have one blind eye and one deaf ear. Really, what he was saying is he, he was using a, a vivid, vivid image in which he was, he was working to capture the, the truth of, say, for example, Ecclesiastes 7.21, which says, Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. So Spurgeon says to his pastoral students, he says, You must be able to bear criticism or you're not fit to be at the head of a congregation. Well, every leader of any type of organization will face criticism, right? Business leaders, uh, community leaders, parents. Every kind of leader will face critics and complainers. When it comes to churches, pastors and elders in particular should not only expect criticism and prepare to endure it, but they also must use wisdom to respond rightly to different sorts of critics. So Spurgeon goes on to say this. He says, public men must expect public criticism. And as the public cannot be regarded as infallible, public men may expect to be criticized in a way that is neither fair nor pleasant. To all honest and just remarks, we're bound to give due measure of heed. But to the bitter uh, bitter verdict of prejudice, the frivolous fault-finding men of fashion, the stupid utterances of the ignorant, and the fierce denunciations of opponents, we may very safely turn a deaf ear. Now, he is not saying that, that all critics should be ignored. There is certainly a place to listen to what people have to say, and depending on the person, depending on the circumstances of their criticism, listening and and taking that criticism to heart just might be the place that we must start. But then there are critics that are, as he says, truly ignorant, meaning that they are speaking without having all of the information required, or they are simply frivolous fault-finders. That type of person that, that no matter what you do, they'll find something wrong with it. And then sometimes you don't even know who they are or, or why they have an opinion. Just to give one kind of simple example. In 2014, we tore down the original Logansville Church meeting house. We saved the bell. We saved the stained glass. One of them is going to be installed right there in a couple of months, Lord willing. We saved some other items of sentimental or even real value, but the building itself was decrepit. The roof was leaking badly. The floors were buckling. The foundation was crumbling. It was right on the edge of the road. It, was, it had become a danger. It had become an eyesore, and it also, I believe, had become a bad witness to the neighbors. But there were people who didn't like the fact that we were tearing it down. Anonymous people, not people in the church, anonymous people who didn't like the fact that we were tearing it down and so they took their criticisms to Facebook. 
Eight years later, we moved about 10 miles east. We changed our name to Redemption Bible Church. We sold the former, the former meeting house to the DeGraff Free Will Baptist Church. So it is still a church. It's still a church building. Every Sunday, there are saints gathering there to worship. And in, in fact, I, I still live next door. And yet there are still people who take their criticisms public. Not people who are actually associated with us in any way. Just anonymous people. People we don't know. Not people who attend. And so I see those critical comments with my blind eye. I listen to them with my deaf ear. Because they're frivolous fault finders and ignorant opponents to use Spurgeon's colorful descriptions. They remind me of the opponents of Nehemiah when he was leading the people of Israel in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. <clears throat> you don't have to turn there. Just, just listen to Nehemiah chapter 6, it's verses 1 to 9. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard uh, that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates... Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hekaphorim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent me four times in this same way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, <clears throat> it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. And then I sent him saying, no such things as you say have been done. You're inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Did you catch how they criticized him? His opponents said, it is reported among the nations. That's the equivalent to people are saying. I think that might be the, some of the worst kind of criticism that anybody can receive because generally speaking, either there are no people saying the things that they're accusing you of or if there are, they're not courageous enough to also come and criticize. This is generally akin to the, to the type of person who thanks you for a job well done and then goes home and complains about it. Joel Beakey writes in his book, um, the title of the book is Pastors and Their Critics, but I think it is uh, a good book for anybody to read. It has implications and encouragements for all of us, not just pastors. But nevertheless, he writes this. He says, A few weeks before working on this chapter, I received an anonymous email in which the author signed his name Theophilus, which in Greek means he who loves God. The letter was one of the most scathing I have ever received in my life. It was so bad that I don't want to tell you what it said in case you would think that part or all of it might be true. In fact, I told my wife that I didn't even dare read it to her. I thought I knew who it was from, but it can be tormenting not to know for sure. I tried to pray about it without much success. 
So I called a very close friend who knows me better than anyone else in the world besides my wife. And when I read the letter to him, he said to me, this is straight from the bottom of hell. There's no truth in it. It doesn't sound like you whatsoever. Throw it away immediately and get back to work right away. Don't let any Sanballat or Tobiah keep you from doing the Lord's work. He says, I followed my friend's advice to throw it away, praying for forgiveness if any part of the letter, God forbid, was true, and I went straight back to work. Why am I telling you all this? Because it kind of looks like it could be self-serving, right? Passive-aggressive. It's not at all. It's because one of the marks of the apostle Paul's ministry was that he, was, he constantly faced opposition. The apostle Paul constantly faced opposition. He faced opposition early in his ministry. For example, when he was preaching in Pisidia in Acts 13, verses 48 to 50, tells us of the, of the mixed results of his ministry there. And when the Gentiles heard this, that is his sermon, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. And the Lord was spreading, uh, the, the Lord was spreading throughout the whole, word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. And that, that was actually a common set of responses to, uh, to that Paul and his companions, his co-laborers in the faith, that they would see. A few would repent and believe. And then a few would stir up others to seek to put an end to his preaching of the gospel. And sometimes, sometimes Paul and his, and his companions would be arrested, jailed. Even at times they would be physically assaulted, beaten with rods or whipped. Occasionally, they would slip out of town, yet they always faced opposition and criticism. In fact, criticism doggedly pursued Paul for his entire ministry. We might assume, rightly I think, that, that when it came to the, the people are saying type of uh, confrontations that he likely heard, that, that he did something akin to what Joel Beakey's friend said. Throw it away immediately. Get back to work right away. Don't let any Sanballat or Tobiah keep you from doing the Lord's work. And Paul didn't let anybody keep him from doing the Lord's work. But it's one thing for someone like Paul to endure his critics and look at them with that blind eye. It's yet another to have new believers in the churches that he had helped establish, that he had worked to plant, to have these new believers start to wonder, start to doubt his message of the gospel because of the things that people were saying. And so in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, he reminds these saints of his ministry toward them, which was, as he says, not in vain. So let's read this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to go just verses 1 to 8. He writes, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. 
For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother caring for her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Now let's stop here and pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us what we need today. That I would decrease and that Christ would increase. I pray that you would feed us from your word. That we might be conformed to the image of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, clearly, Paul and those with him, Silvanus and, or Silas and Timothy, their ministry among the saints of Thessalonica was fruitful. It was a fruitful ministry. Remember, Paul, Paul spent the first, really, all of chapter one, the entire chapter, really laying out the, the proofs of their genuine conversion over and over and over again. In fact, they were, they were working out their salvation by eagerly proclaiming the gospel uh, to the extent that the, that the news of their faith, that, that peop, everybody knew that they were Christians, the news of their faith was spreading all throughout Greece, uh, Macedonia, and Achaia. The message of the gospel itself, he says, was sounding forth from Thessalonica. And yet, as I've been saying, every, every minister of the gospel will inevitably face some sort of persecution or opposition. Jesus went so far as to say in John chapter 15, verses 18 to 21, he says, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, Jesus says, because they do not know him who sent me. And he goes on to tell them, tell his disciples that, that their enemies or his enemies will put them out of the synagogues. They will be disfellowshipped. They may even be killed he will say. In fact, history tells us that um, all of the 12 uh, would be martyred except for John, who certainly didn't have an easy ministry if you know anything about his fate. Every ministry, and I'm not talking here just about the preaching ministry, every ministry, the church, every ministry will face opposition in some form or another. Sometimes it will come from within, Sometimes it will come from without, but always it will come from our own sinful natures. But in Paul's case, he also regularly faced opposition from those who actively worked to undermine his apostolic authority. So in his commentary on this passage, John MacArthur wrote this, and I think this is a helpful explanation of what's going on here. He writes this. He says, false teachers assailed Paul as they often do other faithful shepherds, by impugning his character and challenging his authority. They hoped to ruin the new church by destroying its confidence in the person God used to found it. They wanted to destroy the church of Thessalonica. Paul would admit, um, he would admit his own faults. 
So Romans 7.15, for example, he said, I do not understand my own actions. I, I, I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. Sin is at work within me, he says. He's very clearly talking about his own sin there. But he also would be quick to appeal to God's grace for his ministry. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, he says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Now here in 1 Thessalonians, he feels the need to defend himself by pointing out that his ministry toward them was a true ministry. It was an effective ministry in which the Lord was working. And as a way to, to, to sort of bolster the Thessalonians' faith and, and also ward off the, the opposition, he points out his method, message. He points out his, his motives for doing so. And he also reminds them of his, I had to pick another M, his manner among them, of his how he did ministry, how he acted among them. So his message, his motives, and his manner. And he begins with a statement, really, that links chapters 1 and 2 in verse 1. Look at this. For you yourselves know, brothers, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. His work in the city of Thessalonica, among the saints of Thessalonica, was not in vain. First of all, God used him as the means by which they would hear the gospel and be saved. That's all of chapter 1. But he also explains now, beginning here, that his work there was not in vain because of the message itself. Because of the message itself. Let me read again verses 1 to 4. He says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. In some ways, Paul is actually kind of repeating himself, but he's also expanding on what he's, what he's already said in the first chapter. We shouldn't miss here the fact that um, that not only is, is he defending himself, but he is expounding really on the, on the motives that all Christians should have to remain holy, uh, to remain effective witnesses in the face of opposition, especially in this dark world, especially as we see the day drawing near. Simply put, Paul is teaching us that desiring to glorify God and desiring that others also glorify God, that results in a bold and effective witness for Christ. So their arrival was not in vain. Again, all of chapter 1 is evidence of that. But I want to be really clear here. Results, results are not the only metric by which effective ministry is measured. Or maybe I should say positive results, conversions, right? Paul saw conversions, chapter 1. But conversions are not the only metric by which ministry should be measured. 
Because when the Word of God is proclaimed, there are always results. Sometimes, um, sometimes you will hear people say something like this. Man, that's a big church. They must be doing something right. But the biggest church in the United States, the largest church in the United States of America is led by a false teacher. So that's not the right metric. That's not the right standard. The bigger the church, the, the more right they must be doing things. Rather, we should ask this. Is the word of God being faithfully proclaimed? Because when the word of God is proclaimed, there are always results. So, question. Is it possible for the word of God to fall on deaf ears? Is it possible for the word of God to fall on deaf ears? Yes, but even that is a response. So, so listen to what happened under the ministry of the prophet Jeremiah, for example. Jeremiah 26, verses 2 and 3 says this, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house. Speak to all the cities of Judah that come in to worship in the house of the Lord all the words that I command you to speak to them. Do not hold back a word. It may be that they will listen and every one turn from his evil way, that I may relent at the disaster I have intended to do to them because of their evil deeds. God is telling Jeremiah, go into the temple and start preaching. Go into the temple and, and, and tell them everything that I'm about to tell you to tell them. Do you know what was the response of the people who heard Jeremiah's message? It was this. This man deserves the sentence of death because he's prophesied against this city as you have heard with your own ears. Likewise, the Lord told Isaiah at the beginning of his ministry, chapter 6, go and preach and they're not going to listen. Jesus warned his disciples of this same response in, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. He says, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Failure to listen and what we mean by listen is to heed and obey the word of the Lord, that is a response. It's a rejection. That is, until it isn't, right? Our job as, as those who are sent to go and make disciples, our job is to scatter the seed, to preach and proclaim. That's what's happened here in Thessalonica. See, the message, the message of the gospel, the message of the gospel has power in and of itself. That's what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul knew this. And so he was undaunted in his preaching, even in the midst of great affliction, even in the midst of great opposition. See, his preaching was not in vain. It was not a failure, because despite the opposition, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy dared to declare the gospel. 
They were obedient to the call to go and make disciples. They were faithful to the task entrusted to them. So hear me very carefully. The results of preaching. In this case, chapter 1 tells us that it was that they, they turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. That's, that's repentance. Uh, he also summarizes it as, as faith, love, and hope. The results of preaching established in the hearts and minds of the hearers, none of that is up to the preacher. And I say, thank God. None of that is up to the preacher. That is all the work of the Holy Spirit. All of it. He has called us to proclaim and be faithful at it and trust the Holy Spirit to work. Jesus saved Paul gave him a task, gave him a mission. It's in Acts chapter 9. Paul was God's chosen instrument to bring the gospel here to the Thessalonians. And when he and his co-laborers, when they arrived in town, one commentary says that they, they didn't stroll into the city as relaxed and overfed tourists. They entered still sporting the scars of a woeful mishandling in Philippi. Treatment like this would have been enough to stop any phony mission in its tracks. They were still probably wearing bandages, limping, whatever the injuries were that they were, that were inflicted upon them. They get to Thessalonica and they just kept preaching. They don't arrive to sympathy hugs and cookies. In fact, at Paul's preaching, a riot broke out. Another riot broke out. Yet they were faithful. But notice the source of their boldness. It didn't spring from, from their own charisma. It didn't spring even from their own courage in the face of these things. But rather it was rooted in God. We had boldness in our God, he writes. In other words, Paul was bold because he had trusted in the one who is mighty to save. They had entrusted their souls to the faithful God who saves sinners. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 gives a clear impression of the charges brought against them. Verse 3 says this, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. So it seems like the first charge that, that Paul seems to be answering here is error. Now remember, if you remember when we started our look at 1 Thessalonians, we, we looked at the account of Paul arriving in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. So we know from Acts 17 that many of those who opposed them there were the Jewish leadership. In this case, it was those leaders of the Jewish synagogue. And it was almost certain that they would have charged Paul with, with falsely interpreting the Old Testament. And as they, they also did to Jesus, they probably also, and I'm, I'm making an assumption here, but I think this is a good one, they probably also would have accu accused him of, of violating the traditions of the rabbis. He was wrong. That was part of their uh, refuting of him. Don't listen to that guy. He's wrong. He's in error. 
But Paul could show from the scriptures that his teaching was true to God's word. Paul does this repeatedly throughout his writings. And every preacher today actually must be able to do the same. In in fact, this is one reason why I quote um, so many passages from both the Old and New Testaments while I'm preaching. Because the scriptures testify of themselves that what is being proclaimed to you is true. The scriptures testify that these things are true. Every sermon preached from this pulpit is required to be a faithful exposition of scripture. Not my personal opinions or anybody else's. And we should find great comfort in that. That's also why churches with strong and clear doctrinal standards, i.e. an historic confession of faith, should be the most, most likely to be faithful to God's word since their teaching can be evaluated in light of God's word. We strive, I'm going to tell you, endlessly for the preaching to be without error. Because God's word is without error. We should strive for that. Secondly, Paul was also accused not only of coming to them with error, they were saying he's wrong, but also of coming to them with impurity. This is a term that refers to sexual impurity. Remember, the mainstream Greco-Roman culture, he's in Thessalonica, which is in Greece, the mainstream Greco-Roman culture was very promiscuous. And law-keeping Jews who opposed Paul, they likely saw his ministry and his gospel of grace and proclaimed um, that he was there to promote his own licentiousness. We know that there were false teachers running around doing that very thing. We saw this in our study of 1 Corinthians last year or the year before. We see it all over the place today. There are false teachers out there promoting their own licentiousness. But Paul reminds us, in fact, he commands us to flee sexual immorality. That's a message that is repeated throughout his writings. He also reminds us you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. He calls us to holiness. Remember, these saints, chapter 1 says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So they knew that any charges of of impurity against Paul and, and, and Silvanus and Timothy, that they were completely unfounded. They knew, they could see that Paul and the others were above reproach, which is a a calling that that all elders are to be seen even today. In fact, I don't think it's limited to elders. We're to be people who are above reproach. And then the third charge here that Paul refutes is that he was coming to them with a, a specific attempt to deceive he makes it clear that he was not there preaching. He's not out preaching for, for shameful gain what he ought not to preach. Paul was genuinely, genuinely transformed by the gospel, and he was entrusted personally by Jesus to proclaim it, to take it to the ends of the earth. 
And so he did not manipulate his hearers. He did not twist the scriptures. In fact, he says in, in 1 Corinthians 4, 2, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Open statement of the truth. You want to know what Paul's message was? It wasn't come to our secret meeting later. It was that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul's message was a message of the gospel. The open statement of the truth. Just for this very moment. Paul was a man with integrity. He spoke with integrity because he had been made new by the blood of Jesus Christ. He preached as a man who had been forgiven of his sins and for whom there was therefore now no condemnation because he was in Christ. And so he was compelled to preach faithfully. Verse four, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. And that gets, begins to get here at the motive. So let's just continue. His motive, verses five and six, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor were the pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Do you see Paul's motive? In verse 3, he says, he says, for our appeal, this, was, this is tightly connected to his, his declaring of the gospel, because again, he's appealing to them to repent and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's, he's demanding the gospel, not Paul, the gospel demands a, a response. And so Paul is appealing to them, presenting the gospel, calling for a response. Yet his opponents seem to have suggested that he sought, he sought approval of men through flattery, which would fall under category of what he says to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 4, 3, he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, appealing to flattery. Um, these are those teachers who will say, you actually don't need to repent. God made you that way. Well, you, you can't possibly keep up with that message because our passions, the way, that God, the way that we think or that we say that God made us, the way that we are, the sins that have so easily entangled us, our passions change with the wind, but God's word does not. And so Paul is not there to flatter them. In fact, it's actually pretty hard to preach the gospel rightly and flatter people at the same time. <laughs> you need to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I say repent, I mean, you know, you're doing all these things great. He writes in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. But what about preaching out of greed? I, I will tell you that this is actually really tempting. And it's also 
really easy, which is why there are so many out there doing it, preaching out of greed. Paul, in some ways, was actually vulnerable to this charge because he did do some fundraising. Although not for himself, he actually did fundraising for some poverty-stricken churches. You can read about this at the end of 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 in particular. Yet he also made it very clear that while he had the right to be paid for his labors, there were many times that he gave up that right in order to avoid this charge. Again, we talked about this when we looked at 1 Corinthians. I'll reiterate that the regular normal teaching of the Bible is that those engaged in full-time ministry ought to be paid fairly and generously for their work. And so Paul had the right, he says, to ask for support from the churches that he planted, but he didn't. He didn't do that. He wanted to avoid all accusations of greed, and yet here he is in the position of needing to defend himself for this very charge. You, you know that we didn't even take anything from you, he says. And yet ultimately, he trusts in the sovereign God who sees and knows. God is witness, he says. God is witness. And I should also mention that he was also not, he wasn't motivated by his own glory. Fortune and glory is not why people become pastors. Should not be. Archaeologists, maybe. Fortune and glory. Come on, that's an Indiana Jones reference for you Gen Xers, but anyway. The only glory that Paul sought was the eternal glory that only Christ gives. 2 Timothy 4.80 says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He preached. He was faithful to do what God told him to do so that one day he would hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And he wanted to hear those from Jesus. He didn't need to hear it from us. He didn't need to hear it from the Thessalonians. He preached. He he was faithful in the ministry that the Lord gave him so that he could hear that from him. And then finally and briefly, look at their manner. We're going to pick this up next week. Their manner, kind of in the middle of verse 6, he says, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, verse 7, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. They could have come in and thrown their weight around. They could have come in and announced their apostolic authority. They could have held a book signing and regaled the crowds with stories of the times that that Paul spent with Jesus. They could have sold tickets to the event gone on tour, but they didn't. Instead, they were gentle. And Paul uses probably the most personal and gentle image that he could think of. A mother nursing her own newborn. 
Instead of taking cues from the, from the Roman dignitaries or the Pharisee leadership, Paul modeled his ministry on the work of a mother, gently and lovingly caring for her newborn baby. That was the image that Paul modeled his ministry on. Or, or to kind of switch the metaphor, Paul followed Jesus' command, instruction to, to the apostle, to the disciple Peter at the time, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Paul embodied the same message of love that he taught. He lovingly cared for them. His ministry was marked by what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 13. And you know that passage. But don't miss the fact that verse, verse 8 is his explanation of verse 7. Verse 8 is his explanation of verse 7. He was willing to spend and be spent. He loved the Thessalonian saints. He loved these Christians as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He was willing to share with them because of his great love for them. He was willing to share with them not only the gospel of God. He didn't sit in the green room, then come out and preach, and then retreat to the green room after the sermon. He shared his very, all of them did, Paul, Savannah, and Timothy, their very lives with them. Shared everything with them. Rejoiced with those who rejoiced and wept with those who wept. Prayed for them. Loved them. Sat and ate meals with them. This was just church life, right? He loved them and gave himself up for them. He loved them like a mother who devotes all that she has toward caring for her newborn baby. A mother who conforms all of her life. Paul did this for the church. He gave up his sleep. A mother gives up so much for her children, right? Not only her sleep, her physical body, her career, her own cares of life, everything for her baby because of the great love with which she loves that child. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy gave all to the Thessalonians. Again, not only the gospel, but they gave their own safety, their own security, their own livelihood, their own reputation, all because they loved them. Now, there is more of this that we could say here, and we'll pick it up next week. But let us make it our prayer that we would love one another like, like Paul loved the Thessalonians. No matter what, no matter what opposition may come our way, and we're not, we're not facing opposition, right? There's some out there in the culture that is kind of pushing back a little bit towards Christians, and maybe it's coming, and we should be prepared for what is coming. And we should be prepared for what is coming by holding fast to the word of the truth and by loving one another. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you for this church, for the saints that you have assembled here, that you have called as your own, that you have brought together, for the love that they have for one another, the love that they have for your word, for you. 
I pray, Lord, that we would see these things, that we would take them to heart, that we would hold fast, that we would, uh, we would be faithful to the mission no matter what kind of opposition or critics or criticisms we face. Father, I thank you for the work that you have begun here, and we know that you are faithful to complete it. And Lord, as we come to the supper now, as we eat and drink and so proclaim Christ's death until he returns, we come with hearts of thanksgiving and thankfulness, Lord. We come rejoicing in the finished work of Christ, that our sins have been atoned for, that in Jesus' body, he, he bore in his body the due penalty of our error, that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so, we, Lord, we rejoice in these things. We come thankful for the cup, Lord, his blood that was poured out uh, as a new covenant. Lord, we are grateful that we are, uh, that we are your people and you are our God. Father, we hold fast to these things. We long for Christ's return. Lord, we pray that we would be conformed to his image. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.